Hi, my name's Alex Kelly, co-founder of Brightflag, and this is In-House Outliers, a podcast where I interview those who've taken unconventional paths and challenged conventional notions of how in-house legal should operate. I'm delighted to be joined today on the podcast by Lenore Marcus Siegel. Lenore is an experienced in-house counsel with Hitachi Energy and joins me for a wide-ranging discussion on her career, progression from law firm life to senior in-house roles, the importance of technology and legal service delivery, and much, much more. Lenore, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. I'm excited. Me too. Uh, let's start at the beginning. Can you tell us a little bit about <laughs> where you grew up? Yeah, I grew up in Wisconsin, which I always say is a, is a nice place to grow up. So I had that childhood with sledding and, and ice skating and all that. But obviously, I didn't stay in Wisconsin. But I always find, um, you know, some kind of kinship with fellow Midwesterners because there is this sort of like, you know, salt of the earth thing that happens there. I probably am still a Midwesterner at heart, but I, I've now lived so many different places that I've, I've picked up a little bit everywhere. And my accent is, it, you probably can't tell, but my accent is a mess. It's like five or six different American accents smushed into one. So it just gets stronger depending on who I'm talking to. It allows me to, uh, you know, be a Southerner if I need to be or a Northeasterner if I need to be. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. Barry O'Malley, our VP of product, also hails from Wisconsin, but has similarly kind of traveled uh, extensively and lived in many different places across the US. And yeah, I'm not sure I would have been able to place either of your accents as, as Wisconsin, but that may just be <laughs> Uh, my uh, my ignorance uh, and how would you describe yourself as a kid so first of all my parents kind of believed in sort of laissez-faire parenting so we were we were pretty free range I did grow up in you know the 80s so I never wore a bike helmet and you know <laughs> um, we kind of just ran around town and, and did what we wanted so I think as a kid I was I was you know, I was a good kid. I didn't get into a lot of trouble. I like to read, but I was definitely, um, I mean, I was a doddler. That's what my mother was like, you know, the time it took me to get home from school was hours, <laughs> longer than it should have. I would get easily diverted. So that was, that was kind of me as a kid. And I had four brothers and sisters, but I was the, I was the oldest. So I think I still probably carry some of that with me, the sort of, um, you know, not quite third parent because the third parent is never as good as the first two parents. The third parent cares even less. <laughs> That's possible. Um, but I, you know, I did grow up kind of having, you know, people following me around that I could more or less tell what to do. So I think that might still be in my personality. And I would say things like, go get me a cookie, but you can get yourself one too. That's like the, the main trick of the, the older sibling, that, you know, do something for me, but while you're at it, throw a cookie in for yourself. You've been so good today. <laughs> I wish I knew that trick. I'm also the eldest. Uh, I have two younger sisters. I don't know that I was as good at uh, delegating and uh, yeah, motivating them in the right way as you were. And and what prompted you then to to study and pursue a career in law? Well, I tried not to. I tried to escape it. Um, <laughs> my parents met in law school. So I was born in law school. 
and my mom didn't practice when my dad practiced. He was a criminal defense attorney. And so I, it was kind of coming at me as the inevitable. And then I was like, but I don't know that I want to. And I certainly didn't want to be a criminal defense attorney, but it did become one of those things where it's like, all right, so now is every generation just going to be lawyers now that we've switched to this profession? You know, sometimes families sort of adopt a profession and nobody, <laughs> nobody gets out of it. But yeah, so I, I did end up becoming a lawyer. I have a sister who's a lawyer. I have another sister who people think is a lawyer, but she's not. <laughs> but having two parents who went to law school, that was kind of what was available to me. I probably didn't know about enough professions, honestly. Like if I knew that you could be a TV critic, maybe I would have gone in that. You know, there's all these professions that have come up in the modern world where I'm like, oh, I thought it was like doctor, lawyer firefighter, teacher, I thought that that's what you could grow up to be. So, you know, but I, it, so yeah, I was born into it. I fell into it. I told my mom, I don't know if I want to go to law school right away. And her response was, well, you can take a year off. It's like, oh. and I, so I guess, I guess I'm going. <laughs> All right, I'll be a lawyer. I can definitely relate to that as well, Lenore. My, my dad was a lawyer and growing up, maybe a similar generation to yourself, the kind of career options were, were law, medicine, accounting. I would say strongly encouraged down the legal route. I maybe wasn't as um, challenging as you in kind of questioning what, what other paths might be interesting. And they certainly weren't, there just didn't appear to be as many, many available. It's definitely that generational experience. My younger sister studied and qualified as a lawyer as well. She she didn't practice. And then my youngest sister probably had seen sense by that stage and went into biomedical engineering. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I think we're definitely in a, a different economy. There's much greater diversity and, and I think probably more awareness of for, for kids from a much earlier stage of different routes they can go down. Um, what was your first job then after college? So I did end up taking a year off and I went to DC. A lot of my friends were in DC and I took an internship that evolved. In, well, so I took this internship that was not very well paid as they all were back then. And then the receptionist left and the receptionist job paid better than the internship. So I actually transitioned to being the world's worst receptionist for a little extra money. So I did that for about a year. I was really horrible because I didn't realize how much of the job involved like talking to the FedEx guy, talking to the UPS guy, and I had zero interest <laughs> in being friendly. So I was like, just just leave the package and move on. And uh, I also, I mean, anyone who called, I was like, let me put you on hold. <laughs> I can't, I can't do, why does the phone keep ringing? Let me just, you know, so let me put you in their voicemail and, and I, I was not cut out to be a receptionist. So that, that it did that. I was not snatched away by the career of receptioning. <laughs> I, I was like, okay, I'll go to law school. I can't do this anymore. It's funny. It's a common theme on the podcast. It's often as much about those early experiences to understand things that you don't like as much as you do like in kind of shaping the, the direction and the path you end up on. And, and then fast forward through college, what was your first kind of job out of law school? And, and was there kind of a practice area you were kind of focusing on as a young associate? 
I've been interested in this area in college and in law school. I started out doing labor and employment, and I really thought that that was going to be my thing. <laughs> and I did that for about a year, and I realized that was not really my thing, and also there just wasn't enough work. When I first got out of law school, I was working in Silicon Valley. It was 2002. It was not a great time. People were living out of their cars. And in California, that's the last thing you hold on to. Like, who cares if you still have your house or your apartment? You're going to live out of your car because you need a car. So that was after everything had busted and, and you know, the dot-com boom was very over. And there, there actually, there just wasn't enough work. And so I was like, I'm going to move back to New York. And so I moved back to New York, but within what firm. And there really wasn't enough labor and employment to do there either. What they need people to do was securities litigation. Like this is this big boom in securities litigation at the time. And they just needed warm bodies. So I was like a warm body, but I got thrown at securities litigation. And so I did that for a little bit at the beginning of my career. But that was much more about what did the firm need as opposed to like, well, this is my interest. I really want to do this. It just was high volume work with a lot of menial tasks. So they needed more associates to do it. And again, I can kind of relate to much of what you said there in terms of the combination of your interest and then just practical necessity of where demand exists within the legal ecosystem at the point in time you start your experience as an associate. I similarly started at the time of a crash, the financial crisis. I had gone into <laughs> that early stage of my career, hoping to specialize in renewable energy construction projects and uh, that kind of emerging area of law. But there was just a complete stall in capital available because of the, the financial crisis. And I ended up working as a financial institutions corporate lawyer because there was a huge <laughs> amount of work fixing all of the issues in European and Irish banking. It was a combination, I suppose, of, of interest and then necessity. And, and I'm interested to understand as you kind of started to move up the ladder within kind of litigation practice area, did you start to enjoy it more? I definitely wanted to do litigation. It was sort of what subject matter was I going to get, you know, funneled into, but there's obviously a lot of transferable skills. And so I wanted to be more of a generalist. So I kind of just inched my way over to more general complex commercial litigation and not so much, you know, <laughs> the strict securities litigation stuff. And I tried to pull away from that. And I, you know, I made a few job changes. And with that, I could kind of pull myself firmly into complex commercial litigation, business litigation, whatever you want to call it. And I, I much preferred that being able to, you know, have, have, any subject, any type of client, any industry, any type of dispute, that's what I enjoyed more. So litigation was where I wanted to be, but I started out thinking it was going to be labor and employment. I did this detour into securities because that's what they would pay me to do. And then I was able to come back out into general commercial complex. And I imagine that the kind of seeing those different areas just rounded you out and just built your experience. When you think back now, what would you say the biggest learnings were from that stage of your career? In a way, it was it was a luxury to have so much time to do everything. Now on the client side, you know, I want it makes me want to throw up. But like 
at that time, you were allowed to spend so many hours working on something, even something basic, something simple. And so it really was training. It was, you know, it was like when you go to a teaching hospital and everybody there is, well, this is my first operation. I hope it goes well. Like, you know, I think a nice part of it was just the, the luxury of having clients who anticipated or were willing to pay for a large team on every matter and a lot of hours filled and a lot of, you know, work put into things. And not that we didn't do good work, I don't want to say that, but the work could take as long as it took. Since then, I worked in much more like fast-paced, high-pressure situations where the work needs to be good, but it also needs to be fast. Like, we just need to get this done. We can't let perfect be the enemy of good, you know, or the enemy of done, which perfect can often be like, let's just hit our deadlines, get our stuff done, you know, be more efficient. (laughs) And so I think in the beginning of my career, I had the luxury of being a little bit inefficient. It really is a luxury. It's interesting. I was just talking to our people team earlier, looking at kind of employee engagement models, and we were discussing the importance of team members having some amount of slack in their day and how they work. And I think you really eloquently articulated the value of that and being able to kind of take your time to have the time to kind of learn as you as you deliver a piece of work or do the research in a piece of work and something that might, from the client's perspective, be ultimately perceived to be kind of standard or something that should be turned around quickly, being able to kind of learn through doing in that way is, is probably uh, not as feasible today when corporate legal departments are probably a little bit more mature and sophisticated. Technology has eliminated some of the need for some of that work. But I I probably similarly benefited from some of that as well, where there were bigger teams, there was a little bit more breathing space, there was an urgency of action, but you certainly had that space to kind of learn by doing things. And and I'm curious, were there any kind of mentors for you, Lenore, at that stage that played a role in your development? There definitely were. I mean, I think I had one big influence who was sort of that, I mean, it's almost like out of a movie, like. He was not nice. He was gruff. He was had no people skills, you know, that type of thing. But he fixed my writing. And for that, I'm, I'm grateful. I mean, he would mark it up like crazy little, you know, commas and all that, because I had come from thinking I was so good at writing. I was good at creative writing. <laughs> but I thought, I could write. I had changed my style and I had done academic writing. I did fine in college. I did, you know, fine in law school. And then I hit the law firm world and I was like, this is a totally different kind of writing. And I wasn't immediately good at it. And it didn't, you know, my ability to write a short story did not translate into the ability to write a brief. And it was, you know, so this was someone who who really kind of deconstructed, dismantled how I wrote and showed me how to do it. Now, I'd had previous people who simply criticized, right, or just crossed it all up or started over, wrote it themselves, right? There's there's that way of dealing with a, with a bad writer in the law firm world. But this was someone who was like, 
nah, you sit there, I sit here, and we're going to go line by line, word by word, and this is what it should have said, this is what you wrote, this is what I wrote, and here's why, you know, and that, that made a tremendous difference, and then I ended up actually pretty good at legal writing, and now I'm a really, <laughs> I'm a really picky editor of legal writing, so that's, you know, I can be a challenging client, I'm sure. I like very direct, clear writing, but that is not how I wrote as a young associate. I wrote long, creative, wandering, meandering thought pieces. <laughs> they weren't brief. They weren't good. Again, I can I can really relate to that. I was similarly indoctrinated, I think, in my first few months in the law firm by a very direct senior senior corporate partner who ripped apart something I had written and it was a brutal lesson in importance of clarity and being concise uh, as a legal writer and and it's funny it's something I kind of talk a lot to our team about in in our written style with our customers and and it isn't something that necessarily comes naturally but that tough love at that early stage in their career can be can be really important I know you then relocated to to North Carolina it's a place close to my heart. I, like many Irish people, had relatives in the US and we used to go on on vacation to the Outer Banks, to Ocracoke as children a few times, which as a young kid coming from Ireland was, uh, was an incredible experience. But I'm interested to understand what were the kind of differences between private practice in New York when compared to your relocating to, to North Carolina? So I, I did go from being in a bigger law firm in New York and then to a boutique down here in Raleigh. So there's obvious differences there. But also, it definitely was a change in culture. I mean, up in New York, I was used to, if I had worked enough hours and following all the rules, I was used to ordering, you know, lunch and charging it to a client, ordering dinner, charging it to a client, getting a car home, charging it to all within whatever the rules were of the firm and the client. But it just, it was a different lifestyle. It was, you spend most of the day at the office <laughs> and you go crash at your house or your apartment rather. And, you know, that was, that was sort of the trade-off and a lot of weekend work too. And it was, you know, your weekend would be a combination of seeing your friends, but also working. And that was just the, that was just the New York City hustle mentality <laughs> and no we you know and especially when you're in your 20s and in your 30s you don't really notice it you're just I mean it fits with you you know you've got energy it doesn't matter how many hours you slept it doesn't matter what you just drank or just ate you're ready to go <laughs> but I you know I think coming to Raleigh was probably good for my next phase of life we had had our, our first son already before we um, moved down. And I'd, I'm not really sure how parenting was going to work <laughs> up in New York. It was already scaring me a little. People, He was, you know, he was under one year old and people were already talking to me about like, well, how are you going to get him into preschool? Like, <laughs> is he ready for the interviews? I'm like, no, he barely, he's not, no, <laughs> he can't interview. So, I mean, I think a different, you know, work-life balance, to use the cliche. These things uh, 
have obviously been uh, put under the spotlight in the aftermath of COVID and, and people experiencing the ability to work from home and a, a different pace and more flexibility. And it sounds like it was the ideal stage in, in your life to kind of to benefit from that. And, and having lived in New York, I certainly it can feel overwhelming and, and a place that moves at a velocity different to almost anywhere. What then led to your decision to move in-house at, at ABB? So people always ask me for like tips on living in-house and I'm like, okay, but this is not really all that helpful. It's sort of just do a good job for all of your clients because you don't know when one of them might have a need for you because that's really what happened with me. I wasn't planning on going in-house. I wasn't opposed to it. It wasn't in my plan. I mean, I probably didn't have enough of a plan, but you know, just one of my good clients who I'd always done good work for called me up and said, do you want to come do this in which I'm sure was a huge, you know, external spend saving, but, but, you know, do what you do, but just do it for us. And then you won't have all these other clients to be diverted by. So yeah, it was really just a, a personal invitation. So I did not drop resumes. I did not you know, look at job descriptions. I did not, <laughs> I did not use LinkedIn. I did not, you know, so I don't have, I didn't network. I didn't, you know, go to lots of events or some, you know, there's good ways to do it. I did not search it out, seek it out. It's great advice, focusing on the kind of quality of your work and uh, executing well and what you're doing can lead to a whole host of unforeseen paths and opportunities and, uh, Many people on the podcast have said something similar in not having a kind of really clearly charted career journey, but but similarly doing great work led to the next step. And I'm curious, what was the biggest adjustment then to kind of being a revenue generator in the law firm to running litigation in-house? You know, they always say the first year you're learning the job and the second year that you're doing the job and the third year you're like, you know, ready to find move up and do a different job. But the first year, I really was just like, you know, learning what on earth is this? How does this work? It was eye-opening. I won't point out what wrinkle I got that first year, but I have a very pronounced vertical wrinkle I got from that first year of being in-house. I finally understood what had been going on with my clients, right? You know, you're, you're the external lawyer, and you're like, I don't understand where do these fire drills come from? Where do these emergencies pop from? Why is suddenly something so urgent that we could have planned for? Or the reverse. I've asked them for this and they haven't responded. Why isn't my client giving back to me? Why don't they have this document or this information? This should be easy to get. Uh, why don't they, you know, I just asked for an org chart. Why haven't they sent it? Or I just asked for all the documents relating to X. Why aren't they you know, to me already, just not understanding all the different pressures and forces working upon the in-house counsel. I understand it so much better now. <laughs> so if I could go back in time and be external counsel, again, I, I think I would be better at it because I'd understand that the in-house counsel is not in control. They're in many ways a bridge or a conduit. And they have their own clients. And they're supposed to be managing external counsel. <laughs> and they also have to be you know, wrangling you know, their, their business clients internally. 
and there's just a lot, and they have an org chart above and below. There's just a lot going on with an in-house counsel that I didn't appreciate. Thinking about that in that context of being a facilitator, enabling the business to achieve its objective or mitigate a risk, what skills do you think are the most important to develop to kind of succeed in-house? Unfortunately, it's probably the skills I did not have as a receptionist. So it's still, it's still people skills. It's still, you have to talk to people. You have to listen to people. You can't barge in with your assumptions of what your clients want to accomplish in this scenario. And maybe that's just always being a good lawyer anyway. But I think an in-house counsel can't presume that they know <laughs> where we're going with this like so you do have to listen and you do have to you know you definitely have to gain trust so that involves being available not just in these super crises but at all times you know finding ways to integrate yourself so that you're not just the bad guy calling hi this is legal we need you to cut this out (laughs) you know there should be you should be getting calls from them Hey, Lenora, it's probably not a big deal, but I just want to run this past you. We're going to do this. You know, what do you think? And then, you know, I always ask about a million questions. Wait a minute. What are you talking about? What's going on? Can you back up? You know, and let's chat about it before I decide. Yes, no, (laughs) maybe so. That's such great advice. Like, firstly, the importance of having that kind of pillar of a relationship of trust and then that leading to a kind of proactive rather than reactive engagement where they're coming to you early with a new business idea or project and, and getting the input at that stage where you can kind of mitigate or avoid a risk rather than having to react to a, a much worse situation down the track. And uh, it certainly seems to be the kind of at the crux of uh, when the relationship really works between the in-house team and the business. And I'm curious, how did your role then evolve at, at ABB and then Hitachi following the, the acquisition? So I started at ABB and at some point it became <laughs> known and obvious that the power grid business was going to go to Hitachi and today it's Hitachi Energy. And, you know, so the opportunity came up to either stay with ABB or go along with the divested business. And it was another risk, right, in that actually I've been doing more work with a different business, the the electrification business. And I had done work for PowerGrid and some of those businesses that hadn't been 80% of my day or so, but it, it really came down to what people were going and what opportunity I saw there. And I was like, well, the work is going to change a little bit and it's going to be a little bit scary. And, but, you know, it seemed again, you know, like the right move. And, and again, that was based on relationships and people making that choice. I'm curious to understand, we've spoken like more generally, like what skills do you need to, to succeed as an in-house lawyer? To kind of progress into kind of a leadership position position leading litigation in-house, are there any kind of specific key ingredients for success, like leading litigation specifically, do you think? You need some depth of of experience, some personal background so that you can be authoritative and say, listen, I've been in court in wherever and this is how it goes. Or, you know, I've used that law firm 
this is what how that you know engagement will go there's a lot of people who are scared of litigation but it's also really hard to find the litigation role in-house so I do feel lucky. I, I do think that a lot of times an uh, in-house legal department will say simply, let's the litigation we send out, that goes to external counsel. You know, reviewing contracts or doing deals or whatever, whatever, we'll do that internally and litigation will send out. But I really do think that I can prevent a lot of litigation. <laughs> but the way I do that is with those relationships and having those conversations. If I'm treated like an undertaker, then yeah, I can come get the dead body when it's dead. I know what to do next. Like I have that skill set. But why don't you call me <laughs> before the body's gold? Like, and then maybe we can stop this or come up with a different solution. I definitely don't think the answer is always arbitration or litigation. The answer is not always necessarily even mediation. There's often some steps before that, that that can head off a dispute or resolve a dispute. That's such great advice. And something I know you've spoken about is your interest in using technology to kind of improve legal service delivery. When when did you start to kind of have that interest and, and what kind of practical benefits do you find it brings to, to how you're kind of managing your workload and, and how your team uh, works? I think my career is probably about as old as e-discovery itself is. So when I started, when I was, you know, 300 years ago, documents were all paper they were in boxes they were stored in warehouses or in people's basements and crazy things like that or you know and we would bait stamp by literally taking the, the hand stamper and stamping the numbers on the corners of the documents i mean it was it was a lot of um manual labor <laughs> and it was okay at the time back when one human could know all the documents in a case. And that's just no longer possible with the explosion of email and everything else. I won't list all the 10,000 apps that possibly could have data. You know, one lawyer, one paralegal is never going to know every document in the case. They're not even going to know every hot document in the case anymore. There's just the proliferation of data has gone insane. So I really saw very early how much technology could help with things like that, with things like e-discovery, other aspects of discovery. Now that I'm in-house, of course, I see all the applications for contract management, general matter management. I mean, just there's so much room for us to automate, but not, I don't mean automate in a way that like takes away lawyer jobs or paralegal jobs, but just helps us. I mean, it's, you know, <laughs> I did, I study, I did study a lot of labor history. So I always think about like the handloom weavers, you know, it's, we, we do, it's, it is an industrial revolution. We do have to, some of the old ways of doing things we have to abandon, but it's, it's to make the work easier, not to replace, you know, the brains of lawyers and paralegals. I, I think that's very well said. And it's really elevating and enable enabling lawyers and legal professionals to do more, to make better decisions, to 
to remove administrative clerical time consuming work from their desks that that uh, is capable of automation or, or can be facilitated by by automation and then providing a level of insight with the kind of, as you say, kind of exponential increase in, in data. Uh, that that just isn't possible manually. I know something else you're very passionate about is diversity and inclusion in the law. What more can the profession do to to become a more inclusive and, and diverse place? I think there's just there's a lot of lip service paid to it, and then <laughs> everyone seems shocked when they look around and they're like, "Wait, well, it's not a very diverse or inclusive profession. I wonder why." Um, for me, I think there's a lot of encouraging of different types of people we need to do to come into the field of law. But certainly people with different backgrounds, with different perspectives, people who look different, sound different, move different. (laughs) Um, I think that the law has done so much gatekeeping that it really has kept out a lot of women It's kept out a lot of people from different underrepresented groups. It's certainly kept out people with disabilities. It's kept out, you know, a lot of the population. And my message is always just, if you think you might want to be a lawyer, go for it. Stop letting everyone, you know, tell you not to do it. But then once people get into law firms, we need to do a much better job of keeping them. (laughs) I saw a lot of diversity efforts in law firms where, okay, we we brought people in. So we changed kind of the, the, the rainbow of the firm photo, but did these people get the work? Did they get the mentoring? Did they get the opportunity? Were they made to feel like they were just there for the brochure picture? (laughs) Um, And then, you know, retaining talent like that has to be a focus it can't just be like oh we did this great job we recruited these people look at our percentages okay but look at your partnership it's not what your partnership like so why does the pipeline break down you know internally within the law firm and i find in-house counsel are more diverse as as a whole and it's sort of kind of funny, right, that the corporate world has turned out to be more progressive <laughs> than than the law firm world. And then, of course, in, you know, in legal tech and, and in legal ops, I see a lot more diversity and inclusion than in the traditional law firm world. And it's just a different attitude towards finding talent and ability in all types of people. And so, I mean, I think not, I know everyone piles on the law firms, but I, I really think that that's, that's where a lot of the problems are. And it certainly always struck me, Lenore, that corporate legal teams, in-house legal leaders can be that catalyst for change. They control the purse strings and they have that ability to make it a business imperative for large law firms to, to be more representative you very, very eloquently said, not just recruit diverse teams, but actually have a diverse diverse equity partnership group and diverse partners managing large litigation matters, corporate transactions, give them the, the development and recognition that they deserve. And it does seem, unfortunately, there's still a very, very long way to go, but certainly 
as you say, thankfully, the in-house community is much more diverse. And there are people like yourself who are very passionate about this. And my own perspective, having seen it in the context of the journey of Bright Flag, where there is an increased focus on from corporate legal teams on the need for better data to inform how they manage relationships with outside counsel doing their work. I think in the same way, there is going to be that kind of increasing pressure on law firms to actually put into action um, and ensure that they've got diversity right up through the ranks. And hopefully that change is coming sooner rather than later. I think that there's sort of a a very predictable drop, you know, you can bring in the juniors and have a diverse junior associate base, but then things fall off in the middle. And then you have, you know, a few people at, at the top that then law firms then fight over, you know, in the lateral market to have as, as, as their signature partner to show how inclusive they are. But yeah, there's still something happening in the middle there. It's just not coming to fruition that the diversity you recruit is then the diversity you retain. No, I I couldn't agree more. And I want to be respectful of time, Lenore. You've been very, very generous and really, really enjoyed our conversation. Final question from me, unrelated to uh, legal profession. What do you enjoy doing in your spare time? Yeah, what's spare time? No, so I do I do have three kids, so they eat at my spare I do their activities in my spare time really. That's kinda of like their <laughs> they do soccer and basketball and ballet and tennis and so their hobbies are my hobbies. Rather just driving people to their hobbies is my hobby. I do like to read. I don't read as much as I used to. I do miss the childhood days of going to the library and getting a stack that big and bring it home. And the next week going and getting another stack that, I mean, right now I just, you know, I have books that, that take forever for me to read because I'm just reading them in between other things. Um, in terms of other almost hobbies, I'm also a big fan of Zumba, which I think makes me like <laughs> a soccer mom from like 2000 and you know, 10 or something, but I really like dancing. And so it's it's a way for me to get out that, you know, express myself in that way without <laughs> offending too many people, just my fellow uh, Zumba dancers. It, not something I'm very good at myself, but, but much like yourself, I do spend a lot of my time driving our children around uh, at the moment. <laughs> but uh, again, thank you so much, given how busy you are on the work side and on the home front. Thank you so, so much for for being so generous with your time. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you. Thank you. I've enjoyed it. I'm Alex Kelly, host of the In-House Outliers podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Brightflag, an AI-powered legal operations platform where corporate legal departments gain visibility into operations, maximize productivity, and engage with outside counsel strategically. If you like this episode, then you can find more information in our show notes. If you want to hear more, then you can also find more episodes at brightflag.com forward slash legal hyphen operations hyphen podcast. Thanks again for listening to the In-House Outliers podcast. We'll see you again next time.